Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. Well, at this specific time and point in the story, and if we were to review back and we were to look at it, we would see and notice that time is running short. It's something they don't have anymore. See, at this point, Jesus and the disciples have been in Jerusalem for almost a week now. And they, every day that they've been there, have been teaching outside of the temple. And you can kind of tell the way Jesus is speaking that almost kind of like this is the last time he's making this trip up into this area. And so it was now time of the week for the annual Passover meal, where they would break bread together. And Jesus knew going into this night that this, that his and final time was coming to an end with them. And so unlike traditional times or perhaps other annual Passover meals that they've shared together, on this day, before dinner was served, Jesus took a, a basin filled with water. And then he got on his knees. And one by one, he started to wash the feet of the disciples. Now, when he got to Peter, he refused. Oh, not me, Lord. Not me, Jesus. Don't wash my feet. Until he truly understood what Jesus was trying to do. Understanding the purpose of why the Savior, the Messiah himself, was on his knees. And then Peter said, well, then wash my hands and my head as well. Wash it all. And Jesus told the disciples after he was done to go and do likewise. For no messenger of the gospel, none, is greater than the one who has sent him. And then they ate together. They broke bread. They laughed. They probably talked about the week that they've had. Talked about what's coming up next. They ate. They they just fellowshiped. And then when it was time, Jesus looked over, the scripture says to Judas, there at the table, and all he said was, what you're about to do, do quickly. And the scripture says that immediately Judas left the table to go and betray Jesus. Now, aware of what was about to happen, knowing where Judas was going to go, of course, Jesus takes this time, this final opportunity with all his disciples at the same table, at the same time, in the same place. And he talks to the remaining of them. He drives home two points. When you look through the scripture and you read through it, he drives home two points at this specific time. And he wants them to know these two points before he leaves, before his time is short. And he tells them, listen, listen. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he tells them, my children, 
my children. I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me. But as I just told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you tonight, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. And then shortly after this little chat, not in the near distant future, Jesus was arrested to begin his path to the cross. The two points that Jesus made sure they knew that they, he wanted them to fully understand that night because soon all of them will be released and they will be responsible for telling the world these two things and what that was was truth and love truth and love and from the looks of it from what I'm reading this night around the table with Jesus was something that John never forgot. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open your scripture and your word. We dive in now, asking for revelation, for understanding, for wisdom. God, we pray that the words that are written down actually don't stay there, but they come into our heart and into our mind, so that way they become into our actions and into our, into our tongue, Lord. God, I pray right now, if there's anything written on these sheets of paper that are not from your gospel truth or even from your love, then God, correct me on the spot. Lord, don't let me even say them out loud. Lord, I pray that only your gospel is presented here. And Father, that your, your, who you are, not me, but who you are, Lord, at the cross is what people see. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So if you were with us last week, we started here in a new, you know, new series in First John or Second John. And what we did is it was a letter. Short, if you could look at it, you open it. But it's not long. But Captain's going to find a way to make it two sermons. You know what I mean? And we're going to make it happen. It's not a very long letter, very short. And it's a letter last week that we established was written almost 60 years, 60 years after that night with Jesus, with all the disciples sitting around and eating. Now, by the time of this letter, 2 John, John is now the last surviving disciple who sat around with them at the table that night. The remaining disciples, everybody else who was sitting at that table have been killed for the sake of the gospel. They've given their lives for the sake of truth and love. And we established last week that this letter was written kind of almost like in a, a, a church code, if you will, in, in code language and code words that had to be deciphered. You see, John is writing to a specific church. He is, has a specific church in mind. That's what most scholars believe. But he didn't want to write their name in the letter just in case the letter got in the hands of the Roman Empire. Then they couldn't trace it back to either the author or who it was intended for. So instead, he referenced the church as the chosen lady and her children. 
And John here lays at the very beginning the foundation of this short letter right from the start. He dives straight into truth. Truth, truth. And he praises them for keeping to the truth. We're going to look at that. Because you see, now we're in verse 3. Going right over here to verse 3. Just looking at the first three words there. It's, it's interesting to me how he pins this down. He writes, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It's, it's again, truth and love. See, there are two things I want to point out just from that one sentence. When I was looking and researching, and this specific verse 3 stood out to me. There are two things that I kind of glanced and pointed out here. And the first is this, is that John felt it absolutely necessary to write that Jesus was God's son. He had to write it down. You would think 60 years, we would have had that figured out. That God was, or Jesus was God's son. No, he had to write, he had to pen it down. He had to write that Jesus Christ, the father's son. And this is because at this point in time, there was a movement taking place within the church and among, among Gnostics of the church, really, that Jesus was not the Son of God. And at the time of this letter, that teaching was being accepted by the church. It was being accepted that perhaps maybe he wasn't the Son of God. Now, the second interesting thing is the wording he used in this greeting. Now, it would be common if you looked at all the other letters in the New Testament. It would be common to say something along the lines of grace, mercy, and peace on you, my brothers and sisters. May you have these things. But that's not what John writes. Instead, he is giving this church a guarantee. He is guaranteeing, look how he wrote it, guaranteeing that grace mercy and peace will be with them because of these two things he says truth and love so he says grace and mercy and peace from god the father and from jesus christ the father son will be with you will be with us in truth and love now he has to have a reason to write in the letter right it's pretty short but he felt that I had to, he had to sit down and put words on paper for some reason. And he kind of hints toward that or starts getting to that point in the next verse here in 4. He, so he continues to write out that it's given me great joy, he says. It's given me great joy to find some of your children, your members of the church, your children, walking in the truth. Just as the Father commanded us. I mean, this is literally, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I have joy. I have joy that your church isn't falling for the false teachings. That you haven't welcomed the nonsense that Jesus isn't the Son of God. He says, I have joy for this, that they're walking in the truth. He is saying, he is the Son of God. I have a firsthand account. Read the book of John. I can tell you, he is. And so he continues writing, and now, dear lady... Or dear church, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. 
Oh, man, that one stuck out to me. I'm not giving you a new or different way to battle the false teachings, but I'm giving you the same exact command that Jesus gave all of us that night around the table. The same one that was given to the disciples the night that Judas left. It was given to us when Jesus washed our feet that night. And I could still feel the cleanliness of my body and my feet and my, because of it. When he broke bread with us, he writes, All I ask, please, church, all I ask is that you love one another. It would appear that that night, really that night, with Jesus left an impression on John. Because 60, 70, 80 years later, he is still referencing it in all of his writings, every single writing. He has spent his entire life telling and writing about these two things in every letter and book, truth and love. And so he continues here in verse 65 and 6, it says, And now, dear lady, I'm not writing for you a new command, but one that we've had from the beginning. I ask that you love one another, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his commands is that you walk in love. Many deceivers, he writes. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. He's pointing this. Many deceivers are acknowledged that Jesus did not come in the flesh, have gone out into the world. He's hitting home again. Truth, truth, truth. Jesus did come in the flesh. The world, he's saying, must know that Jesus came in the flesh. He stepped down from heaven to become flesh. This is important for John, and it's important for you and me. In fact, this isn't the first time that John made a reference to it. And we read it all the time, usually around Christmas season. Is that when John wrote his very first chapter in his first book, he wrote the words, the word became flesh. It made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only, he says, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. To John and to the believer, truth has always and will always be a person. Always. Never subjective, but always a person. And Jesus Christ, the one who came in the flesh, is the truth, is what we're writing here. That's what we're saying we believe. And so now John goes into a word of caution, a, a, a word of warning as he finishes this letter. He warns the church of these types of false teachings who speak against Jesus. He tells them, that any such person is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, I know that word, antichrist, catches our attention. We all perk up and get excited. Antichrist, you know, there's movies on it. There's books on it. There's ideas and ideologies on it. Antichrist, and here's John writing it down. Here, and he's pinning it to this church. And let me speak into that for just a moment. John is not saying in 2 John, here in this verse, he's not saying that every false teacher on this earth is the Antichrist. In fact, in 1 John, his letter just right before this one, in 1 John, he writes that there will be many 
before of the one spoken about in Revelation 13. Yes, there is the Antichrist, but here an Antichrist is simply a person who is against Christ. Now, we cannot look at that. We're talking about someone who's making it their priority, their personal ambition to be against Christ. That's not an atheist. That's not the same thing. An atheist doesn't even believe that God exists or matters. But this person is saying, I am against Christ. This is an antichrist. I'm going to do everything I can to separate you from him. And so over here is a person who is intentionally opposed to Jesus. And due to the spreading of the false teaching at this time, an antichrist in the early church was defined. There was a definition for it. And this is what it was in the early church. It was a person who denied the incarnation or denied that Christ became flesh. This person denied that Jesus is the Son of God. They even denied the Father himself, questioning his deity. And it was defined in the early church as liars and deceivers. This is what made an antichrist. And in John's day, an antichrist often left the church. They would start in the church, but then they would leave. Why? Well, because they couldn't find anyone like-minded. And so they would then leave the church because they couldn't find anything common with the believers. And this is what is widely believed to have led the start of the early Gnostic movement of the first century is the simple fact that they didn't believe Jesus was in flesh the Son of God. Now John tells this same church that he has a lot more to say. No surprise, right? All of us preachers, we got more to say, right? So we've got more to say, but instead he writes, I hope to visit with you all face to face. This is probably because he didn't have a Zoom account. So he wanted to go and see him face to face, you know. So he signs off the lettering, letting them know that the, uh, hold on, my word, my papers got backwards. I was starting to say that. I was like, you know what? That doesn't make any sense. Let me write that again. That before John finishes, see, Captain's human. See, this is what I prayed for. This is it. That before John finishes the letter, that's what I meant to say, that he gave him a few more words of caution. That's where I was going at. That part I knew. He tells them that anyone, anyone who runs ahead, that's what he says, runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. This is what he writes down. But whoever continues in the teaching who continues here in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So let me just, re re in reference to the person he's talking about who leaves the teaching behind, this is all he says. If you're the one who's running ahead and you're leaving behind all the teaching, all he says is that this person does not have God the Father. But pay attention. Because he references, he changes the term. He changes what he says in the very next day. He says, if you do have the teaching, if you stay with 
the teaching and go this way, he says that this person has both the Father and the Son. John says that anyone who continues in the teaching has the Father, and that this is because in order to get to the Father, what you must do, go through the Son. Now, this is fascinating to me, and work with me here, is that the ones who do not believe, the ones who maybe are false teachers, who are going ahead, it says here, and spreading at this time in the first century, Gnostic, or, or that Christ was not the Messiah, they wouldn't know the Son. They wouldn't have, the, have Jesus. And so John says simply that this person doesn't know God. But to all of us here who go and teach and spin and pray and understand that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, John says clearly here that this person knows both the Son and the Father. And so his final word to them is that if a false teacher comes to town, right now if a false teacher was to come to town, he writes, looking for a place to stay, this is his advice. Do not offer your house. That verse 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of Christ, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now, wait a minute. Is John here in his letter actually telling us not to feed the hungry, house the homeless, clothe the naked, give hospitality to the non-believer. Is this what John is writing? Did he really just tell us not to be like Christ-like? No, that's not what he was writing here. He was telling us here at the end of his letter to remember these two things that Jesus left with all of them on the table that night. Truth and love, remember truth and love. In the first century, when teachers traveled from town to town, they would find a local house or a family to stay with during their time in the city. This was extremely common. The family would host them, they would feed them, they would provide for them while they were there. It was their hospitality. This was the model that Jesus and his disciples used. And when they went around, they didn't have homes, they didn't have place. It would be whoever opened their house to them, they would come in. They would stay there, feed them, and take care of them. And what John here was instructing believers is to refuse, was not instructing believers to refuse hospitality to unbelievers or those with incorrect theology. He wasn't saying to totally shut them out or separate yourself from them. He was instructing them to not contribute to teachers who deny the fundamentals of our faith. In other words, you can have dinner at our table, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. A lot of people read that and they think John is telling them to shut the doors on anyone who doesn't have the theology you have or, or thinks the way you think. No, not at all. What he was saying is that as the believer that our hospitality is given for the sole purpose of letting someone come to Christ. That any time of our hospitality is in direct conflict with that, then he's saying, protect your house. This is what John is writing to this church. So John then tells the church, here's what I meant to say, that he wants to, has more to say, 
but he will be visiting with them face to face soon. And so he signs off, letting them know that the children of your chosen sister, or perhaps a close by sister church is what that is referencing, sends their greetings. And then, Second John ends. The whole letter is over. Real short. It's only 13 verses at 302 words. Making it, in English anyway, the shortest book in the entire Bible. Reinforcing perhaps the two largest teachings of Jesus Christ. Truth and love. And what about us today? We go through 2 John, we go through the teachings, we look through here, this letter that was written to the church a very long time ago. And what about us today? And this is the part where I stop and I spend an incredible amount of time on asking God, what about us today? We get, for whatever reason, he led me to this letter, and I ask, why? What does the book of 2 John mean for the church today? But even more so, what does it mean for Gwinnett County, for the Salvation Army here today? What is the purpose and meaning of this book? And it means, I believe, after spending an amount of time in prayer and asking him this question, is that it means that this church, I'm talking specifically here, that this church has to be a place of truth and love. And it must be both. It has to be both. We can't lean on one or the other. We can't lean on them. We can't pick one and go with that one. We can't be a church that its only pillar is love. See, that, that the only thing that we care about as a group of believers is love. That love is the mission. Love is the goal. Love is the final destination. We can't, we can't love just for the sake of love. I'm telling you, this is spending my time in prayer with the Lord. You see, these types of churches that only love for love are willing to compromise or even abandon the truth in the name of love. And the same goes the other way. That a church that only leans on truth. You see, these churches, the ones that only lean on the truth and neglect and forget about love, are the ones who guard their doors, picking and choosing who enters its gates. They will deny love for the sake of the law, for the truth. You see, they, they can't come here because look at them. These types of churches are legalistic, or simply put, they have become the very thing that put Jesus on the cross. Pharisees. The church must be both. It has to be both truth and love. Out of real truth, out of genuine truth, is born love. Christ's truth is love. And real love, genuine love, is sharing the truth. Out of truth is born love. 
And genuine love is sharing the truth. Anything less than that, any program, any fancy thing, smoke machines, lies, whatever, anything less than those two things right there is a lie and a facade. That a church has to be based on truth and love. And what John has shown us is it can be done. He can do it. So what does love and truth actually look like? Because that was my final question to God. Was that as I was writing this down, what does it look like? We know the teachings of it. What does it look like? And after some time in prayer, I felt that God answered that. By saying love is the image of Jesus suffering and bleeding on the cross. And truth is the reason why our churches display empty crosses today. Love and then truth. Good Friday love, Easter Sunday, truth. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.